it's a little daunting to follow, uh, to follow uh, as good a Dharma talk as can be given. Uh, the one that happened around 2 o'clock this afternoon, did you catch that one? Um, always feels to me a little bit incomplete for a late spring, early summer retreat to go without that kind of Dharma talk. It's really quite wonderful. Um, uh, the Japanese monk poet Ikkyu Sojun uh, wrote a poem that, uh, paraphrased, goes, silly priests studying their sutras, uh, first they should learn the Dharma brought by the wind and the rain. Uh, he actually used the word the words love letters brought by the wind and the rain. The uh, custom here at IMS uh, is to take whatever uh, posture is uh, comfortable uh, for you. Um, as you do that, uh, see if this can become uh, just a continuous part of your practice. Uh, we stress continuity in practice. It's what really brings this work alive. Uh, and it gives us something to inquire into a little bit. Uh, so how does this uh, form uh, become practice for us as well? And uh, what I'm going to be talking about this evening is right effort. And if you can kind of go into this uh, yourselves with me, uh, then we'll be doing this a little bit together. Uh, this is not a form of communication that I value. I mean, I do, but it's, it's an, um, an inefficient uh, form of communication and teaching, I think. Um, and um, so to make this as lively for yourself in terms of your own interest and your own inquiry uh, can liven it up a little bit. We're going to go from uh, talking about right effort and wrong effort and maybe get to the point where we ask the question, uh, is any effort at all right effort? Uh, effort is something that's uh, been talked about for years and years, it's quite prominent in terms of the Buddhist teachings. It occupies a place, a step on the Eightfold Path. Uh, it's found as one of the uh, five faculties, spiritual faculties. It shows up as one of the factors of enlightenment. Uh, it's a burning question that almost all of us have at one time or another. How shall I practice? What effort uh, do I put into this that um, facilitates my own growth? Around uh, the year 796 or so in China, uh, a young man of about 18 uh, wandered off into the mountains and came to the monastery of a very well-known teacher named Nanchuan. Uh, this 18-year-old's name was Zhao Zhou. Uh, Zhao Zhou would stay with his teacher for 40 years until his teacher died. His teacher was about, uh, probably in his late 40s, uh, when Zhao Zhou entered the monastery. Uh, Zhao Zhou then traveled around China uh, with the attitude, uh, if I come across someone who is uh, quite well along the path and has questions, I'll do my best to answer them. Uh, if I find a child who uh, seems to have something to offer, I'll immediately become his or her ardent student. And this he did for about 20 years. He finally settled down at the age of 80 and uh, taught for another 40 years. Uh, he's uh, revered as one of the best-loved uh, uh, 
uh, Buddhist meditation teachers in China, in Chinese history. Um, this conversation took place um, shortly after Zhao Zhou entered the monastery. And things were such then that uh, teachers and students mingled together, they lived together, they worked together. Uh, and it was uh, quite okay to walk up to a teacher any time and ask him a question. So uh, Zhao Zhou approached Nanchuan and asked, what is the Tao? And Nanchuan replied, ordinary mind is the Tao. Uh, Zhao Zhou asked, shall I try to direct myself towards it? Nanchuan replied, if you try to direct yourself, you betray your practice. Well, if I don't direct myself, how shall I know it? Nanchuan replied, uh, the Tao is not subject to knowing or not knowing. Knowing is delusion. Not knowing is blankness. When you truly come upon the genuine Tao, you will find it vast and boundless like outer space. How can this be talked about in terms of affirmation or denial? And at this, Jojo had a profound awakening and spent another 40 years with his teacher developing it and deepening it. Um, Chinese Buddhism, as many of you probably know, incorporated uh, much of Taoist uh, terminology at one point in its history. And uh, the word Tao uh, came to mean uh, uh, bodhi, enlightenment, uh, wisdom, uh, the Buddha Dharma, the Buddha way. Uh, and so Nanchuan is or Jajo is asking essentially, what's the most fundamental truth? Uh, what is most real? What's most fundamentally true? Uh, it's like if you would walk up to one of us and say, uh, so what's really the truth? And Nanchuan replies in a way that was probably quite unexpected by Zhao Zhao. He says, ordinary mind is the way. Now, ordinary mind has, has several meanings. Um, one is just your usual, common, day-to-day mind. The other meaning uh, to ordinary is um, constant slash eternal. So he's pointing to something that's, that's pretty interesting. Uh, something that's ordinary, that's quite common, uh, and yet is uh, fundamentally true, uh, eternal, constant. And then we get to what Zhao Zhou's real agenda is, which is, so how do I get there? Mm, I would guess most of us have a similar question at one time or another. Uh, probably no one in this room, well, I'll speak for myself, I didn't come to this practice because my life was just great. My relationships were wonderful, I was happy, everything was going swimmingly. I came to this practice, as I think most of you probably have, because something hurts, something feels unsatisfactory. 
uh, were deeply troubled in some fundamental way. Something about our life uh, presents a question that we can't answer. And uh, it, it sticks in our craw and it eats at us. It could be something that manifests itself behaviorally. Why can't I ever have a, a, a good relationship with a partner? Uh, why can't I hold a job? Why does it seem like I'm always getting myself into hassles with people? How come I'm so scared all the time? So these questions come up for all of us, and, and we don't come to this lightly. Uh, for most of us, this is not a game. Uh, this is, um, in some ways, a matter of life and death. This is the only t life we've got, as far as we can tell. Uh, whether you believe in reincarnation and other lives or not, uh, right now, this is it. And so this is the one we have to make count. Uh, and as far as we can tell, uh, we know that it'll end. Uh, we don't know where or how or when. Uh, it's one of the great mysteries uh, that this could end at any moment. Um, so Jojo wants to know, how do I work with this? How do I practice? What kind of effort should I make? And Nanchuan says, uh, and, and imagine for yourselves, if, if you've approached one of us and, and you've said, well, how should I practice? What effort should I make? And we say to you, any effort you make misses the mark. There's no such thing as right effort. Where do you go from there? Well, Jojo went pursuing and pushing his teacher. Well, if I don't practice it, if I don't direct myself, what am I to do? How am I to find freedom from this condition uh, that is so deeply troubling for me? And that takes us into the realm of effort. Um, in some ways, it can be useful to look at what right effort is not. Um, because as we begin to identify that, we can uh, um, be alert to when we're off the mark. And much of this work is about that. It's about seeing where we're off the mark, and in that moment of seeing, we're back on the mark. It's in the seeing uh, that we're re-anchored. And it's in the seeing that there's a potential for real freedom. Uh, the Buddha in the Baya Sutta, which is a favorite of all three of us, uh, talks about, uh, gives a very, very brief, concise uh, summation of his dharma to a, a man named Baya. Uh, and he says, uh, Baya, when in the seeing there's only the seeing, in the hearing only the heard, and in the touching only the touched, in the smelling, and so on and so on, then uh, you are neither here nor there nor in between. And if you are neither here nor there nor in between, there is no you and there is no suffering. That's the kind of intimacy that uh, is possible when we're seeing where we're not clear and present in the moment. So wrong effort. Wrong effort is fairly easily identified. 
uh, by uh, certain looks on the face. Uh, in Zen, they say three things are required, great faith, uh, great doubt, and great effort. And most of the um, uh, pictures, paintings that you see of, of Japanese Zen teachers and in the Thai forest tradition, folks are looking pretty grim. Um, uh, there's a series of pictures of Thai forest masters, and the first, the first impression you get is they've not had their prunes in a long time. You know, it's, <clears throat> um, and from what I've been told, there's also they, they have a wonderful sense of humor. So, what you see is not necessarily what you get. Uh, but this this great effort, this tremendous striving, uh, we can hurt ourselves doing that. It's not only uncomfortable, but we can actually damage ourselves. And if we're already working with some sort of physical injury, a back problem, a hip problem, a neck problem, uh, or just the simple aches and pains uh, that come from putting the body in a position and keeping it there for long periods of time, and gravity doing its work, uh, the striving against that can only make it worse. It just adds tension to the body, tension to the mind, and tension added to pain and discomfort, at least in my experience, doesn't seem to help much. So the, the hard, muscular effort, um, that's one pretty clear giveaway to when we're off the mark. Um, effort can become just more selfing. One of the things that Nanchuan is saying to Zhao Zhao is that uh, you're setting up an artificial distinction. You think there's some place to get to. And you think that if you just do it right, you'll get that. Common, yes? And I think if we all took a lie detector test, we'd all, you know, we'd have a certain blip on that screen if we were telling the truth or not. Uh, none of us come into this without wanting something out of it. That gets us on the path, it can keep us on the path, and at some point it becomes a major obstruction on the path. I want. And that's just more selfing. Concentration practice, I'm not against concentration practice. I'm not against concentration. Uh, as we've been teaching, a certain amount of ability to focus the mind and, and allow body and, and mind to begin to settle around the breath uh, is really important. Uh, otherwise, sitting, many of us would just run screaming from the hall and be done with it. So uh, a certain amount of, of focused practice is very important. Um, we can develop great powers of concentration. Uh, natural concentration, those of you who are using sharp objects in the kitchen, and uh, without a certain amount of focus and concentration, you unwittingly add protein to the salad. Not a good idea. So this natural concentration is also very important. Concentration and deep samadhi states are not wisdom, and they don't teach us how to live. And the giveaway on that is how fragile they are and how dependent they are on conditions. You know, we've all experienced having 
you know, what we call a good sitting, wonderful sitting, calm, clear, uh, and the car goes by, or the lawnmower starts up, or somebody walks in the hall, the whole thing comes down like a house of cards. And then we're grumbling about, oh, why, why did this go away? Why, don't, why do they come late to the sitting? Not singling anybody out, but why, why do they come late to the sittings? And we get all revved up about that. Well, where did our calmness go? How many of us have had a nice sitting in the morning, go get in a car, and in five minutes, we're a raging demon behind the steering wheel? If you live in the Boston area, this is a common experience. I have it frequently. Uh, so where is our? how does that help us with learning how to live, having wisdom in the moment? It doesn't. It can begin to help the mind be uh, fit, be toned a bit, uh, to um, bear up under the rigors of bare attention because it is a rigorous practice. And in some ways, it's a very austere practice. It's a beautiful practice that has great joy in it. And we develop an appreciation of things as they are that is uh, quite lovely. And it's quite austere and quite rigorous. Facing ourselves in this bare way, moment to moment, over the course of seven days, and being willing to do that at home, in the car, everywhere, that's a steep practice. It also creates the the division between um, the concentration object and the concentrator and is fertile ground for good concentrator, bad concentrator, good meditator, bad meditator. Well, if if I'm able able to get to these deep deep states of calm, I must be doing it right. More selfing. The Buddha said at one point that uh, under no circumstances cling to anything as me or mine. If you've heard that, you've heard the whole teaching. If you've practiced it, you've practiced the whole teaching. If you've understood it and actualized it, you've understood and actualized the whole teaching. Very easy to cling to concentration, practices, as me and mine just as easy to cling to anything else as me and mine. But because it's often very pleasant, it's a little, um, the mind's a little more tenacious in coming to terms with its true nature, which is impermanent, uh, fragile, falls apart, and is ultimately unsatisfactory. Um, Trying to think of other areas of that will let us know that we're sort of tilting in the in a uh, not useful direction in terms of, of effort. You can think of some yourself. I hope you're considering that now um, during the talk. Um, so, what is right effort? Um, that gets a I, for me that gets a little slippery and a little tricky. Um, I prefer to think of of right effort in terms of interest. Uh, And, if you will, in terms of love. 
if we're really interested in something, is there effort there? Sure, we may have to look at uh, not wanting to, to get to our writing tablet every day. We may have to meet the resistance to that. Uh, we may have a certain form of exercise that we just love. Uh, and there will be days, you know, there will be days like this, Mama said, where I don't want to do it. And that has to be met. But for the most part, if we love it and we're interested in it, there's an ease, there's a natural interest. That becomes our effort. If we're with someone we love, sure, there are times that it can be difficult. The practice of relationship stirs this up invariably. And if we're someone we love or we're doing something we love, there's an ease, there's an effortlessness, there's a rightness that just simply flows. Now, the me will get in the way of that. Uh, the me is, is jealous. It's very possessive. It wants not freedom. Fundamentally, it doesn't want ease, real ease. It's um, powerfully conditioned to maintain its own separate, unique status. It's somehow hardwired for survival. And you look at the body. The body's wired for survival. The body will do what it needs to do to survive. It knows what it needs to, in terms of water. It knows what it needs in terms of exercise, in terms of food, in terms of whatever it needs to do to protect itself, the body will do that. You would think that the mind, the thinking would get, the eye would get, it's dependent on the body for its survival. The body's gone. Where's the eye? curtains. The eye will do things that profoundly damage the body. Right? We've all had intimate experience with that. So the eye is, um, when it works its way into uh, what we love, it creates that kind of separation. And things can go, can begin to go off the track, off the road. Um, so the effort that this practice requires, in some ways, has great ease to it. Uh, as you're listening right now, uh, you have no difficulty uh, distinguishing between the sound of the voice the sound of somebody moving, uh, the sound of a bird, that takes no effort at all. There's a direct, immediate, intimate, non-separated knowing that's neither easy nor difficult. It just is. Uh, if I would ask you um, uh, what your name is, right before that, were you conscious of your name? No. I wouldn't think you're sitting there thinking, well, I'm Doug, I'm Doug, I'm Doug. Right? There's a, a stimulus that calls forth that conditioned response. 
Prior to that, there was no sense of a Doug, a me. There's just listening. Um, were you aware before I ask you right now, are you male or female? <laughs> We're not, I'm not sitting there, well, I'm a man. You know, you're probably not sitting there, I'm a woman. Those, those distinctions are useful. They're important. But they're not fundamentally true. What's fundamentally true, who we most fundamentally are, is that presence of awareness that knows immediately. How can that be practiced? We can begin to recognize it. And as we begin to recognize it, it seems to appear with greater frequency. What's there all the time, we begin to find more and more. Um, when Nanchuan um, commented on uh, Jiaozhou's question, well, if I don't direct myself, how can I know it? In addition to uh, saying you're creating a, an, an unnecessary and misleading delusion-based separation. He's also alluding to something vast and boundless that's not subject to the kind of discriminating uh, choices for and against that the mind makes. Um, Something just happened, and I'm trying to decide whether to comment or not. Um, maybe later. Um, how can what's vast and boundless, like outer space, be talked about at all, first, firstly? I mean, if, if we're really interested in having some uh, direct knowing of what's most fundamentally true, interest in finding if there really is something beyond thought, deeply interested in knowing who we really are, interested in in, uh, concepts like the deathless, the unborn, the Buddha nature, as more than just concepts, if we're interested in freedom, then thinking has profound and clear limits. Thought cannot go there. Can thought take in vast, boundless space? Can thought know God? Can the conditioned have a relationship with the unconditioned? I I personally don't see how that's possible. So, we watch Nanchuan walk Jiaozhou through this really wonderful teaching, not answering Jiaozhou in the way that Jiaozhou expects to be answered, continuously pointing to something that's literally under Jiaozhou's feet. 
the next time I have an opportunity to do this, I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, where I think Zhao Zhou missed uh, Nan Chuan's first response. It's amazing the hubris we get when we sit in this seat, right? I'm going to comment on where the most beloved teacher in Chinese Buddhist history went off the mark. Go figure. Um, So we can loop back around. What is ordinary mind? Vast and boundless. How do those two connect? Vast and boundless excludes nothing. It's vast and boundless because it includes everything. Awareness itself makes no discrimination. It just simply knows. It doesn't choose for or against. There's an intelligence in that awareness that immediately knows. There's a clarity in that intelligence that if it's not clouded by the mind toxins, results in clear action. What could be called right action. Ordinary mind, vast and boundless. Nanchuan is saying that what you're looking for is right here. Don't look any farther. Don't think you have to become somebody through great effort or that somehow you're not complete as you are. It's what each of us in our own way is pointing to. You don't need anything. complete and perfect exactly as we are. And maybe each of us need a little work. You know, there's a, there's a balance there always. But Nanchuan points to what's most fundamental. This is what we need. That this moment is complete exactly as it is. It holds everything we need to be free. And if we're not going to be free now, when is it going to happen? I had the good fortune to uh, speak with an elderly woman of about 86 this last summer. And uh, she hit me with two, two buckets of ice water in a very fierce but wonderfully loving way. First, she made it very clear that any effort at all was off the mark. And she made it clear in a way that absolutely stopped me in my tracks. Um, and the other one is completely lost on me. Isn't that interesting? Hmm. I'm hearing voices. The devas are operating. Thank you. The other was, you've been doing this for 30 years. Why are you not yet free? It's a good question, isn't it? What is it that's holding us back? Why is it that we don't trust the completeness, the wholeness of this presence in this moment? Why are we looking always for something else? 
because it's a fool's errand. There is nothing else. And yet the eye is always looking to confirm itself. And if it gets that it's done, this is complete, in that way it has no other service to render. There's a kind of fundamental insult to thinking, to the thinking mind. But it's a, it's a question that each of us can ask ourselves. It's a wonderful inquiry. Why am I not free right now? What is it that gets in the way? How am I not living the understanding that I've already got? That in and of itself is freeing. That'll hold us up against an edge of interest that has energy and effort, the right effort to meet that will be there. So we're working with this balance depending on where we are in our journey. Uh, And no one, no one can tell you or me or anyone in this room what is wise for us in that moment. We can make suggestions. We can all make suggestions to each other. We can point. But it's a wisdom that's learned not on somebody else's authority. It's learned by confronting those fundamental questions. One of which is, why am I not free now? At the end of Jajo's conversation, he had a uh, deep realization. He worked on that for another 40 years. Beautiful, huh? Mm. Oh, there's a a poem that's attached uh, to this story. Spring comes with flowers, summer with the breeze, autumn with the moon, winter with snow. When idle concerns don't hang in your mind, this is your best season. Thank you for your attention. Do some walking. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.